You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, we declare that your Son is worthy, worthy to receive all praise and worship and honor. He possesses all power and authority, and as we declare his worthiness, we can't help but be conscious of our own unworthiness, Lord. These songs are not enough. These words are not enough, Lord. You are so worthy. And yet you invite us, and yet you make us part of your family. You call us sons and daughters. You invite us to address you as Father God. We love you. We thank you for moments like this where we can focus on your majesty and your beauty, Lord. And now that as your word is open, God, I pray that you would speak so powerfully and so clearly, God, that we would not hear my voice, but that we would hear your voice. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A couple of weeks ago, I got in the car to drive my sons to school, and it was the first morning where there was a frost everywhere, and so there was frost on my windshield. We were running a little bit uh, late, as we often are, and I thought, you know what, I'll just turn on the defrost, I mean, that's what it's there for, and I'll just let the windshield wipers take care of it, and so I uh, backed out of our driveway, and I started down the road, and it, it became very clear that I couldn't see what was in front of me, that a frost wasn't working, I was actually out of windshield wiper fluid. And I had to make a decision at that point. I honestly had only driven about 250 meters. And I had to pull over. And I had to scrape that frost off. I had to refill the, uh, the wiper fluid. Because if, if you're driving and you can't see clearly, that is a very dangerous decision to continue to move forward. And I'm very thankful that there wasn't some um, unsuspecting bystander between uh, my driveway and the place where we stopped. But you know what? So much of life we, we spend moving forward without seeing clearly. And so often the reasons why we crash in life, the reasons why we hurt ourselves and hurt other people, the reason why we experience so much dysfunction in our lives is because we move forward without seeing clearly. And so we're beginning this new series today, this series called Seeing Clearly. How can we move forward in such a way, understanding what is ahead of us, what is in front of us? And so today we're going to, and over the course of this series, we're going to pull over. We're going to be scraping off the frost from the windshield. We're going to be trying to make things as clear as possible. And in order to do that, we're going to be turning to the book of Revelation, And so if you don't have a Bible with you right now, the ushers are coming up up and down the aisle right now. And uh, we'd love to put a Bible in your hands. And this is our gift to you if you don't own a copy of God's Word. So everyone get a Bible in their hand, open it up to the book of Revelation. Now some of you are thinking, okay, 
if the goal of this series is to make things clear, why are we looking at the book of Revelation? I mean, isn't that the most unclear book in the Bible? And admittedly, I, 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 get, I understand that hesitation. I mean, mythical beasts and a terrifying locusts and a, a horseman in the clouds and this cube city coming down uh, from the sky. Uh, clear or unclear? Uh, unclear, for sure. But have you ever noticed that sometimes the most obvious things are the hardest to see? And have you ever taken time to think about the book of Revelation and just thought, maybe I should just stop trying to interpret every single symbol and lay out my plot time graph for Armageddon, and maybe I should just see what is clearly visible in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 says, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means that Jesus is the one who is giving the revelation. It says it's of Jesus Christ. Christ. But he's not just the one who is giving the revelation. He's not just the communicator of the revelation. He's the content of the revelation. And in this series, there are some things that we need to be able to see. And it's our desire that as we turn to the book of Revelation, there are some things that we would see clearly. And the most important thing we need to see is Jesus. If you see Jesus clearly, then you will be able to see everything else around you clearly. And so that's where we're going to begin today, seeing Jesus clearly from the book of Revelation. One of Jesus' disciples, John, is the one who put pen to paper, who wrote down what he heard and what he saw. He describes in the opening verses about how he was on the island of Patmos, and, and he was either uh, imprisoned or, or exiled uh, there. It wasn't a place that you go just to vi- live or to vacation. And he has, this, he has this vision. It begins, he hears this voice. And we're going to pick up the story in chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a sun of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the the vision that John had. John John saw Jesus clearly in this moment. And three things will happen to us if we see Jesus clearly. Here's the first one. It's right there in those verses we just read. When we see Jesus clearly, we will be humbled by his glory. When we see Jesus clearly, we will will be humbled by his glory. This is a picture of the, the glory of the Son of God. The beauty, the majesty, the authority of Jesus Christ. And the result of seeing him as he is, what we will find happens to John and what needs to happen to us, is we ought to become humble people. We're told time and time again in God's word to humble yourselves. And the only way to truly live a life of humility 
is to see Jesus clearly. He begins in this vision, he says that he sees one who is like, one who is like a son of man. A son of man, that was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Whenever Jesus was talking about himself, he often said, the son of man came to do this, or the the son of man is going to do this. And some people think that when Jesus talked about the son of man, it was sort of in contrast to being the son of God. You know, son of man, it was him showing like, I'm a human being just like you. I, I've come, I'm, I'm God in the flesh. Now, in some ways that is true, but when Jesus used the title son of man, he was no reason, by no means downplaying who he was. You see, in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, that's where we're introduced to this concept of son of man. And Daniel is having this vision, very similar to Jesus' vision in Revelation 1. And this is what Daniel saw. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And and there's an affirmation of, of humanity here. This is a human being, but what's a human being doing on the clouds of heaven? Then it goes on to say, he came to the ancient of days, and that's God. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is this human being doing riding on clouds and receiving things that only God should receive? And this is the the mystery of Daniel chapter 7 and the Son of Man. He's... He's human, and yet he's being treated as though he were God. And Jesus is the Son of Man of Daniel 7. He was God in the flesh. That's what we're about to celebrate at Christmas time. That Jesus, who was God, came and dwelt among us. And he is worthy of all the glory and dominion and power and the worship of all people, as it's described there in Daniel 7. So, The first thing John mentions when he sees this vision of Jesus is he mentions Daniel 7. He says, I'm seeing, this must be exactly, exactly like what Daniel wrote about in Daniel 7. I see one like a son of man. Then it's interesting, he uses the word like, and he keeps he keeps repeating it. And it's it's not as though he's like, you know, like teenagers who like say like uh, like every other word, you know. You see, it says that. it says that he sees one like a son of man. If you look at verse 14, his hair was, was like white wool. His feet was like burnished bronze. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Like this, like this. Here's the reason. He's trying to explain the unexplainable. He's trying to describe the, the indescribable. He's trying to put into words what words cannot possibly articulate. So he has to use this phrase, it was, it was, it was like It was like this. Because what I saw, what I'm writing about here, is too beautiful, too glorious, too awesome for me. There's no no analogy that I could use that's perfect. It's it's like. It's like these things. And he, he zeroes in on eight features of the Son of Man. 
Uh, his, uh, take a look at them here on the screen, his robe, his hair, his eyes, his feet. I apologize for the drawings. I'm just trying to make it as clear for you as possible. His voice, his hand, his mouth, and his face. And we're just going to go, uh, we're going to spend uh, most of our time during today's message on point one, just this idea of his glory and how it should humble us. And we're just going to go uh, piece by piece through these different things that John saw. First he saw a robe. It was a long robe. And it had a golden sash. And uh, if you were to study God's word carefully, the, the long robe with a sash that, that was not completely gold but had gold on it was uh, what, the, what the priests wore. And it's written about in Exodus chapter 28 verse 4, chapter 39 verse 29. A priest is a mediator between God and man. And because Jesus is the son of man, he is fully human and yet divine, he is the ultimate mediator. And so he is wearing clothes like a priest because that is his role. Then it says in verse 14 that his his hair, the hair that was on his head were white like wool and like snow. White hair in Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of days in chapter 7 verse 9 has white hair. So this is affirming Jesus' deity. Why why is God shown with white hair? Why is Jesus the son of man shown with white hair? It's a sign of wisdom. It's a sign of wisdom. Proverbs 16.31 talks about that that gray hair is a a sign of, of wisdom. It's also a sign of purity. His hair was white like snow. Remember what David prayed in Psalm 51, 7? Cleanse me. Purge me. He says that I may be white as snow. It's the purity of Jesus Christ that he had never sinned, lived a perfect life. Moving down his head from his hair to his eyes. It says that his eyes were like fire. I just wrote down one reference. Exodus chapter 3 verse 2. Fire is a symbol for the presence of God. Think about Exodus 3 2. That's Moses and the burning bush. And then you had the the burning pillar of fire. And then you had uh, on Mount Sinai at the giving of the Ten Commandments, not just a bush that's on fire, the whole mountain is on fire. And then the temple or the, the tabernacle before it, you had an altar. And what was on the altar? Fire. The presence of God symbolized by fire. Jesus' eyes were like fire. Um, this was written in a time before uh, electricity, before the so lights that you see uh, around us now. If you wanted to see in the dark, you needed fire. Jesus' eyes are like fire. He sees in the dark. We think that we can close doors. We think that we can delete our browser history. We think that we can whisper in someone's ear. We think that we can be alone in our own thoughts. And we think no one knows. Someone knows. There is one who has eyes like fire. And all of the things that we hide behind and all of the excuses that we make, his fire shines through the darkness. It burns whatever gets in its way. His eyes are like fire. And then his feet, his feet look like they've just come out of the fire. It says that they are are like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. So they're, they're glowing 
It's, it's, mel- it's metal. Bronze is, a, is an alloy. Two metals come together and need to be heated up. And the idea here is, is his, his feet are glowing and they're glowing and they're bronze. Bronze was what was used for weapons and warfare. So strong and sturdy. And he, here's, here's the significance of his, his feet being these glowing, burnished bronze. Is, is in Daniel chapter 2, we already mentioned the importance of Daniel in understanding uh, Revelation. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful person on planet earth, had this horrifying dream. And he had this dream about a statue. And Daniel was the one who helped him interpret the statue. And the different parts of the statue were made of different material. And it was all very strong. But the feet were made of clay. And then the statue topples over because the feet were so weak. And Jesus here is shown to have strong, sturdy feet of bronze. You see, when Daniel interprets the the vision, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that actually the the statue is not just about Nebuchadnezzar. It's actually about about, uh, Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. It's about these four mighty kingdoms that were going to be a force to be reckoned with. But the, the last one was, had clay feet. There was an inherent weakness. It was not sturdy. It was not stable. And so they were all going to fall. Now, if you were living at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, you would have thought that Babylon would rule the world forever. And then along came Persia. And oh my goodness, the Persians beat the Babylonians. And look at how they're governing. And look at the, the expanse of their incredible kingdom. I mean, the Persians are going to rule forever. And then, the, and then along came Alexander the Great. And now Greece is in charge. And then the, then the Greeks seem like, like they, they took over so quickly. And then all of a sudden, the Romans. And now no one's worried about the Romans anymore. No one's afraid the Babylonians are going to take over the world anymore. No, one, no, one's, no one's concerned about Persia. The Greeks are known for yogurt now. Because there was clay feet. Because the kingdom seemed so strong, seemed so powerful, but it was, really, it was just weak. Here comes the next kingdom, here comes the next kingdom, here comes the next kingdom. Don't take for granted that the the nations that are powerful today, that they're going to be powerful 50 years from now. Don't take for granted that they're going to be powerful five years from now. Every earthly kingdom has clay feet. Jesus has burnished bronze. And it's not going to rust or deteriorate or anything. It's still glowing like it's from the furnace. And so there's no wear and tear on it at all. It's like brand new, fresh from the furnace, Every day that his reign goes on, he's as strong as it was on the first day. So Jesus has a kingdom that will last forever. His feet are like burnished bronze. And then his voice. His voice is described like the roar of many waters. This is from, uh, it, should, it should read Ezekiel 43 verse 2 and Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 24. The voice of God is like the voice of many waters. This is all over the Psalms as well. The voice of the Almighty. The sound of rushing waters. When's the last time you were really close to a really big waterfall? It's like deafening, isn't it? It's so 
loud. It sounds so loud. It sounds, it sounds, it sounds like, like this. You, you, can't, you can't hear the person talking next to you. You can't hear the sound of your own voice. You can't hear yourself think. It's so loud. And I heard a Pastor Chris ask a question once. It was such a powerful and profound question. He said, he said, is Jesus the loudest voice in your life? When Jesus speaks, is he, when his word speaks to you, is it speaking louder than your desires? Is it speaking louder than the pressure you feel from friends or from family or from your boss? Whose voice is the loudest in your life? You know, you can visit Niagara Falls and you can, you can be uh, on the maid of the mist. You can be right there at the bottom. You can hear the falls. Or you can be out at the edge, uh, on the observatory deck, and you can hear the falls. And you know what? You can walk down the street and those lame shops with the wax museum and the Hershey factory. You can still hear the falls. You can walk even further away to one of those water slide places with your kids. You can still hear the falls, but the further you get away, the less you can hear it. And our goal as Christians is to get as close to the falls as possible. So that we hear nothing but his voice. Isn't it ridiculous that we go to Niagara Falls and then look at wax statues of lame celebrities? Oh, Ozzy Osbourne, he's made of wax. When the majesty of the falls, the visual, the sound is right there. And how ridiculous is it in our lives when God is speaking to us. And we, and, we, and we think, oh, what's happening on Twitter or Facebook? Or what's going on, on television? Oh, blah, blah, blah. Let his voice be loud. Let it be as loud as possible. Get as close to him as you can and ask him to speak. His voice is like the sound of rushing water. He's not going to say a lot about his hand because that's going to get explained uh, in verse uh, 20. Verse 16 talks about his mouth. From his mouth came a sharp sword. Isaiah 11 verse 4 says that, that the Messiah will use his mouth to strike the earth, to attack the earth. It's not a sword, but it's a rod. It's, it's a prediction about how Jesus will lead with his words. He will speak truth in a powerful way. And that's the word that we have, Ephesians 6.14. It's the sword of the Spirit. Hebrews 4.12. It's that double-edged sword that cuts through, just like his burning eyes cut through all of our excuses and how we try to hide things in darkness. His sword cuts through the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And then his face. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. In number 625, the, the priests used to stand up and bless the people and say, may God's face shine upon you. And when, when, John, when John saw his face, you know, it was like, it was like looking at the sun. He, he, he could see it, but he had to kind of keep looking away. He was drawn to it, but he knew he couldn't Look at that, that's what it's like with the holiness of God. We are, we are drawn to his majesty, to his glory, yet we're so humble because we know we can't just look at it. 
And John would have, would have remembered another time when he saw Jesus' shining face. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were, were brought up on a mountain and Jesus' face shone for them to give a glimpse that this Son of Man is the Son of God and that He has glory beyond our comprehension. And on that day, Peter, James, and John, when they saw Jesus on that mountain, they fell down as, they, as though they were dead. And that's exactly how John responded in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When you see Jesus Christ and see him high and lifted up, the, the appropriate reaction is for us to get as low as possible. Uh, Peter, James, and John did it in Matthew chapter 17. We see this is what Moses did at the burning bush. This is what, this is what uh, Joshua did. This is what Daniel did. This is what Ezekiel did. This is what Paul did. This is what people do when they enter into the presence of God. Isaiah saw a vision of God and said, woe is me, I am ruined. Saying, I'm coming unglued, I'm falling apart because I have seen the Almighty and I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, it's a consciousness of our own sin. Peter in the fishing boat saw Jesus with the miraculous catch of fish and then he fell down at his feet and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. We ought to be humbled. We ought to be humbled when we think about his hair being white and, and, and so pure. <laughs> what color would our hair be if there was a, a vision like this of us? Think about his, his, his mouth that speaks, it's like a sword. What would they use for our mouth? Something that speaks out of one side and then speaks out the other? Something that can say something positive and then something so vile and perverse. Think about his eyes that are see everything. And think about the things that we've put before our eyes. Think about his face shining like the sun. And then think about those times where you've looked in the mirror and you can barely even look at yourself. And you're just like, who are you? Why did you do that? Why did you say that? But the goal of Revelation is not for us to simply look at ourselves. The goal of Revelation is for us to look at him. And when we truly see him, we will get as low as possible. This is the only appropriate response for sinful human beings in the presence of a holy God. To fall down as though dead. Why? Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And so what happens here in the book of Revelation is just, a, is just a visual reminder of where all of us stand before God. And it's when we truly understand that, when we truly understand our sin and our fallenness and that we deserve to die and we understand his glory and his righteousness, it's only then, it's only when we are humbled by his glory that this next thing will happen, that we would be comforted by his mercy. That we would be comforted by his mercy. You'll never be comforted by his mercy un until you know how badly you need it. You'll never rejoice in being forgiven until you understand how desperately you need to be forgiven. And you'll never be a forgiving person yourself. And you'll never be a merciful and gracious person yourself because you've never experienced it and embraced it personally. We must be humbled... By his glory, we will be comforted by his mercy. 
Read verse 17 again. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Where would we be without those small conjunctions in the Bible? What if the word but wasn't there? It would just end with him lying there dead. But Jesus is a merciful Savior. Look what's being described here. His right hand. That hand that is somehow large enough, strong enough, powerful enough to hold seven stars. The strength and the authority of that hand. Calmly, tenderly, and graciously reaches down and touches John. Think about that. You see, so many people think about religion as though we are supposed to reach up and touch God. That by obeying the right rules or practicing the right rituals, that somehow we will be able to reach up to him. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are dead in our sin and that God in his mercy tenderly reaches out and touches us. And he says, fear not. He says, you don't have to be afraid. Will you be comforted by his mercy? He says, I am the first and the last. That's what God uses to describe himself in Isaiah 44. Verse 4, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 44, verse 6, Isaiah 48, verse 12, and Isaiah 41, verse 4. I am the first and the last. He's, he's stating his equality with the Father. Think about this. Jesus is the first. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And it was the Word of God. Jesus, together with his Father, speaking the universe into existence. He's the first. He, he knew this universe. He knew this world before sin, and he is the last. He is the one who is going to be there on the throne in the new heavens and the new earth. He is the last when sin will ultimately be dealt with. He's the first before sin. He's the last after sin. And here we are in the middle. And our only hope for our lives to be transformed in the middle is to recognize that Jesus is the first and the last. And that he came right in the middle in order to save us so that we could be with him for all of eternity. I'm the first and the last, he says. And then he says, and the living one. The living one. Some of you might think, well, that's kind of obvious. I mean, everyone's living. I mean, why would he say, I'm the living one? Now, John was living, although he'd lay down as though he were dead. He was living. Why is that so significant about Jesus? Well, listen, uh, Jesus lives because he lives. Uh, we live because we breathe oxygen. Uh, we live because we eat food. We live because blood flows through our veins. We need all of those things in order to live. But Jesus is the first to the last. Jesus lived before there was a sun. I mean, human beings weren't created until day six. Why? Because God had to create an environment in which it would be possible for us to live. 
Jesus lived before the sun, before oxygen, before water, before food, before land, before any of those things. He is the living one. He's dependent on no one and nothing. And then he says, I am the living one, verse 18. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now think about this. Think about Jesus being the living one. And think about that as it relates to the cross of Jesus Christ. How and why did Jesus die? He's the living one. Uh, For us, when we die, we die because we cease to take in oxygen. We die because we lose too much blood. We die because our hearts stop. But why is it that Jesus died? He's the living one. He didn't need oxygen in his lungs as he's suffocating on the cross. He didn't need the blood that was spilled through his wounds or from the spear in his side. That wasn't why he was living. He was living because he was the living one. Here's the thing we need to understand. Jesus said, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. The only reason why Jesus died was not because of the nails, not because of the scars, not because of suffocation. The reason why Jesus died is because he chose to die. It's the only reason. He said in John 10, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it up again. He's the living one. And that's why, that is why he can reach with that right hand and touch John, who has fallen as though dead because of his sin. That is why he can say to him, fear not, you don't have to die. You don't have to die in the holiness of my presence because I'm the living one and I died instead of you. The wages of sin is death and I'm the one. I receive the payment. I receive the wrath that you deserve for your sin. I'm the living one. I died, he says, and I am alive forevermore. Will you be comforted by his mercy? May God open our eyes to be comforted by his mercy. That when we fall flat on our face because of our sin, he reaches and touches us with a, narrow, with a nail-scarred hand and says, don't be afraid. I died, and I died for you. When we see Jesus clearly, we will be humbled by his glory. We will be comforted by his mercy. And lastly, we will be confident in his sovereignty. We will be confident in his sovereignty. He goes on to say, I am alive forevermore, I'm in verse 18, and I have the keys to death in Hades. Keys is a sign of authority. It's a sign of sovereignty. The person who has the keys is the person who's in charge. I've got uh, keys to my house right over there because it's my house. And and I'm the one who owns it. And Jesus, because he died and is alive forevermore, he has the key to death and to Hades. The key to the grave. He has the authority to go into the dungeon where all of us are because of our sin, condemned to death, and to turn that key with his authority that he alone proclaims and to open wide the door and declare freedom. And to invite people to step out of the domain of darkness and to bring them into the kingdom of his light. He has that kind of authority. And then he he just practices that authority on John, verse 19. Write therefore the things that you have seen. Jesus is in charge. 
And so you better bet that John got his pen out as quick as possible. Because this is the sovereign. This is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And when that thunderous voice speaks, we all need to do, be ready to do whatever he tells us to do. In John's case, it was to write. And I doubt John said, well, I'll pray about it, Jesus. I doubt John said, well, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. No, Jesus is the sovereign one. And when he says jump, we say how high. He says, write therefore the things that you have seen, and those that are and those that are to take place after this. Now, there's, this is kind of an outline of the whole book of Revelation. The things that are, the things that you've seen, the things that are to take place in the future. And uh, in this series, we're simply going to focus on the things that are. There's a lot that can be said at another time in the book of Revelation about the things that are to take place and what we can expect in the future. But in this series, for seeing clearly, man, it's hard to look into the future if you can't even tell what's in front of you right now. And so what we want to do during this series is to see clearly the things that are. Who is Jesus Christ? That's where we're starting with. And then we're going to look at who are we? And what is the battle that we're fighting in right now? So we're going to zero in on that. Then he has the authority to reveal mysteries, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the, the lampstands and the stars are all representative of the churches. The, the, those stars are uh, angels. And the angels are, are representative. They, they, they are the angels for these seven churches that are represented by the seven lampstands. You know what's incredible? I mean, John doesn't waste any words here. But in eight short verses in a description about Jesus, he mentions lampstands four times. It's actually the first thing he sees. Look back at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. That, that, that's, this vision of Jesus Christ is in the context of Jesus among lampstands. It's Jesus among the church. You might be here today and you're thinking, you know what, Ted? I'm loving what you're saying, man. We need a clearer picture of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, when I go out and walk in the woods, or you mentioned Niagara Falls, when i out in creation, you know what? I see Jesus so clearly in the world around us. Or, or, or maybe you're thinking, yeah, when I get out and get, sit down in my favorite armchair and my cup of coffee and my study Bible, I see Jesus so clearly my question for you would be, are, are you really seeing him? Because the place where John saw Jesus was in church. And you think, well, hey, you know, those lampstands, you know, uh, I've been burnt by, by them before. And uh, I, I, I don't want to get close uh, to, to church anymore. Well, you need to understand that if you distance yourself from church, you're actually distancing yourself from Jesus Christ. Because if you want to see Jesus clearly, you're going to see him among the lampstands in the midst of church. 
Now, I, I understand that there's no hurt like church hurt. There's no love like church love. There's nothing like feeling like part of the body and other people using their spiritual gifts to help you and you using your gifts to help others and the synergy, the unity, the power. There's no love like church love, but man, there's no hurt like church hurt. And so some of us are are really shy towards the idea of letting my heart really come close. Church could be, it's an event I go through in the week, but it's not a place where I belong. You need to understand, Jesus is among the lampstands. You also need to understand that the next two chapters, Jesus has some things to say to the church. Jesus isn't in the midst of the lampstand saying, oh, this is all going great. And so when I'm saying that we need to be committed to church if we're committed to Christ, you need to understand that the church is made up of sincere people but imperfect people. People who are wholeheartedly trying to follow Jesus, but people who are falling forward as they are doing it. But this is where Jesus chooses to reveal himself in the midst of the lampstand. And for those of us who are committed to this church, it's really easy for us to not see clearly. It's really easy for us to think that it was, you know, I stacked the chairs, I taught my children's ministry lesson, I shook some hands at the door, and then we pack it all up in the trailer, and we sang some songs, and heard a sermon, and, and we're, we can so, be so busy doing church and welcoming one another that we lose sight of the fact that he's here. Eyes like fire. Those those feet of burnished bronze, that hand holding the stars, the the pure white hair, the, the sun shining from his face. He's here. And I... I don't want to move forward as a church unless I recognize, unless we recognize that he's with us. And that humbled by his glory and and understanding the depth of his mercy and his sovereignty. He's here. He's the the world-creating, truth-speaking, sinner-loving, cross-bearing, law-seeking, soul-saving, church-leading, sin-atoning, universe-upholding, wrath-parpitiating, shame-covering, grace-giving Son of God. He's here. He's dwelling among the lampstands. It's not a perfect place, but this is His place. And he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And so let's prepare our hearts to declare that through song. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see your Son. God, we are all in desperate need of a revelation. We need you to help us to see clearly. 
And God, I pray that you would do such a work in our midst right now, that you would manifest your presence, that you, by your spirit, would reveal your son so that he would be glorified in our midst. All of his glory, all of his mercy and grace, all of his sovereignty. And that we would have a sense of awe and wonder, Lord, that as we're gathered as your church, as the lampstand, God, that you are standing among us, that we are standing in your presence. So God, help us to respond with reverence and awe now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.